As was mentioned previously already, how thankful we each can be this evening to assemble and to gather that God has blessed us with a beautiful day He's made and created, a day, a part of which you and I can devote especially to His service, it being the first day of the week. And we're thankful for the opportunity to worship that keeps our mind grounded upon the things revealed in the Word and certainly helps us have the best start possible to the week that's now before us. We're so thankful for the presence of each and every one this evening, as Rogers mentioned previously, our membership, and certainly those who come our way from whatever arrangements or circumstances. We're glad that you're here, and we hope that our service will indeed be the thing most importantly that magnifies God's cause and kingdom and helps each of us along our way this week. As we come to this part of our service and give some thought for the next few moments to a portion of the Word of God, let me encourage you to be turning to Galatians, the 4th and 5th chapters. Those will be the chapters before us this evening. In particular, during the last several Sunday evenings, it has been our interest to turn our attention to those books being studied by those youngsters studying for the Bible Bowl. And that competition, by the way, is very, very close at hand now. It is true that as we have been studying those books, we look first at 1 Corinthians and now at the book of Galatians. After studying those 16 chapters of 1 Corinthians, we now have considered some three chapters of the book of Galatians. And tonight, chapters 4 and 5 will come before us. If I might take just a moment to at least recollect for us what we saw last Sunday evening, or really I guess it was two Sunday evenings ago, we in fact on that occasion looked at chapters, the previous couple of chapters, chapters 2 and 3, and we saw in them the important principle how important it was to appreciate chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. In that we saw that that law, that law of Moses, was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. As great as that Old Testament law was, its central purpose and role was to lead individuals to appreciate God's greatness as seen through Christ and to lead them to Jesus, to lead them to the church, to lead them to the plan of salvation. For that reason, in verses 26 and 27, we read, You're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And put before the Galatian brethren on that one central observation was the centrality of being a child of God and that's only accomplished by way of obedience to the gospel culminating in baptism. Once Paul had emphasized that part, that which opens next in chapter 4, which is what will come before us tonight, then points to the reality of how then one could revisit the law of Moses. Why would you ever turn from it? That is to say, to turn from the gospel, to go back to that. Let's look at the argument that Paul develops in this chapter. As he does that in chapter number 4, we might well appreciate it as follows. Beginning in verse number 1 of this chapter, we see the following set of ideas. You may appreciate it is set before us there about the opening part of that slide. Paul makes this presentation. Even though a person who is an heir, that is a great and noteworthy individual, even though that one may be an heir when he's young or when he's a child, he still must be treated basically like a slave or a servant. He must be cared for. He must be told what to do, for he's too young to appreciate anything else. Paul's point is, under the law of Moses, we were kept in bondage, speaking about those Jews of that day. 
We, just like those who haven't yet reached maturity, were kept in bondage, awaiting that time of great fulfillment. Paul was beginning a powerful contrast between the greatness of the law of Christ, this gospel ministration beneath which we live, compared to the inferiority of the law of Moses. Under one, we're kept in bondage. Under another one, we enjoy freedom. We enjoy liberty. We enjoy the opportunity to be most pleasing before God. With that said, let's then notice the time frame. Kept in bondage when, Paul? For how long, Paul? He says in verse number 4, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Let's pause for a moment and reflect a bit upon the interesting conclusion of that verse. But when the fullness of the time was come. That word fullness has reference to, from the basic underlying Greek word, the completion of something, the accomplishment of something. God had in mind and He had in view the thought that under the character of those previous eras and administrations, they were looking forward to a completion of something. When the fullness of the time had come, when the Old Testament law had run its course, as full as the intent put before it by the great God of heaven, completed all that was in the mind and purview of what God had intended, when that had taken place, God sent forth His Son. There are those that, of course, look upon history and see in it nothing but a hodgepodge collection of facts, events, characteristics, but according to Paul, it wasn't so. Jesus came into the world at the express time for the express purpose and in the express way that the God of heaven had intended. He wasn't born in 4 B.C. just happenstantially. He wasn't born on that occasion just because there was no other characteristic of appreciation. The fullness of time had come. And with that, there was to be a noteworthy and great change in the overall working of the things of the human family. You'll notice that that patriarchal era that was running really for the Gentile nations ever since the time of creation. And then that law of Moses had been added to it for the, for the Jews, of course, beginning in Exodus chapter 20. But now those having run parallel for all those years, there was to be an ending of them. The fullness of time had come. And with that fullness, we appreciate God sent forth His Son. Indeed, made of a woman, made under the law. But then the next verse quickly leads us to appreciate this. As you can see, after that orchestration, that completion of some 4,000 years of human history, may we never forget that one day is where the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day, 2 Peter 3, 8. And so God, being not limited or restrained by the character of time, He rather brought to bear all the realities of that to bring Christ into this world. Isn't it amazing to think about how He overruled sovereignly to bring that about? The Jewish nation itself had almost annihilated itself at least twice. You may remember in Egypt, here they were subjected to hard and laborious rigor. They were to the point almost, it seems, of bleakness. In Exodus 2, 23-25, they cried out to God for release from the burdens which they were bearing. God responded by sending them Moses, and plagues as well, brought them out of Egyptian bondage. 
Through 40 years of wilderness wandering, they again found themselves in dire straits more than once. Ultimately, in the book of Judges, even after conquering and taking that land, they again found themselves in great hardship seven times in that book. Every time God raised up a judge, a deliverer, who would lead them to victory over their supposed oppressors. Finally, we observe the Babylonian captivity as well as the Assyrian and in those realities, is it not true, this people again, so often in disobedience and so often, found themselves greatly removed from the God that loved them. At this point, notice God never gave up on them. He had in them a plan to bring Jesus into the world. The one that would not only be their Savior, but the Savior of all mankind. May we never forget that our God is able to orchestrate the affairs of time and history to bring about His will and the reality of its accomplishment. What was the grandeur of verse 5 then? Christ came into the world, verse 5 says, to redeem them that were under the law. Would it not be safe to say that those Jews did not think they needed a Savior? They thought that all was well with them. You may recall on one occasion a rich young ruler came to the Lord and asked about the nature of eternal life. And after the Lord made the statement about to keep the law, that man said, These have I kept from my youth upward. He felt as if a compliment was, his, was due to him. Apparently a commendation was ready for him to receive. The one thing the Lord said is the last thing he expected. One thing you lack. Go sell all you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. That man, it seems, felt he didn't need anything else. And yet he did. The Jews, by and large, didn't think they needed redemption. They didn't think they needed a Savior. They didn't think that they needed forgiveness from anything. But we notice here, verse 5 still says they were in need of redemption. Redemption under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. Those sacrifices of the Old Testament, as we've looked at them so often on Sunday morning, those sacrifices that were so well-intentioned and often presented with such detail, they had as their intent for that day and time to allow them to appreciate the enormity of their sin, the greater sacrifice one day yet coming for them. The fullness of the time had come. Paul in the Galatian letter said that Christ was sent at that time, the right time, the propitious time. Maybe Paul also in Galatians, rather in the Roman book, also highlights this interesting thought. In Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Did you notice? In due time, at the right time, at the proper time, it was the right time for Jesus to come into this world. And so it was a fulfillment of God's plan, the perspective of His purpose. You'll notice verse number 6 then goes on to say, And because ye are sons, it is through Christ that you and I can be called the sons of God. Remember, that's the passage we considered back in chapter 3, the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. You and I who are individuals of faith, those who have been buried in baptism for the remission of our sins, those who in fact were added to the church, Acts 2.47, those that were baptized by the Spirit into the one body, 1 Corinthians 12.13, 
You and I are the most special of all individuals on earth. We are the children of God by faith. We have a linkage to the great God of heaven. He is our Father. As such, we, like this verse says, we can cry, Abba, Father. That word Abba comes from an Aramaic term that expresses a tender reliance, a tender relationship to one's Father. You and I in this land, of course, don't speak Aramaic. We speak English. And so it is that we may refer to our Father. Quite often not as Father. We may call Him Dad. We may call Him Daddy. But many of us at least don't in a more proper way refer to Him as Father, at least in casual conversation. Isn't it sweet to think about God who cares for me and for you, who has the greatest of intent and desire that you and I might do well and live with Him forever, that we can in prayer refer to Him and think about Him in such a close and intimate way? That's a powerful concept, isn't it? You'll notice in the verses that follow, no wonder then Paul could ask these Galatians some leading questions. Look at verse number 9, please. But now after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? The Galatians were turning aside from the precious and pure and pristine gospel that they had previously enjoyed and obeyed, they were turning to weak and beggarly elements. And did you note the language? As that verse closes, he says, These weak and beggarly elements bring you again into bondage. The liberty you formerly enjoyed in Christ, the freedom you had in Him, you are forfeiting it, giving it up to go back to a life of bondage attached to the law of Moses. How could you even think it? How could you even seriously contemplate it? You can almost hear Paul asking them that question, can't you? In fact, in verses 10 and 11, he says, Ye observe days and months and times and years. I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Paul was fearful that they would fall into complete apostasy. I'm afraid the labor that I and others have bestowed upon you will ultimately be in vain. Notice, in essence, Paul says, If you do this, you'll be lost. You will give up the faithfulness of the gospel that you once had enjoyed and being apart from Jesus, you will be lost. Can each of us then not see that apostasy from the faith is very serious? It's not as if it's fun and folly and games, is it? It's eternally serious. Isn't it interesting in the verses then that follow? We notice that Paul again begs them to think seriously, not once, not twice, but any number of times, not to do what they were thinking about doing. In fact, as this next slide proceeds, let us look at some of the ways that those questions were asked. You'll notice these false teachers that were corrupting their mind and enticing them into these false ways of thinking. These false teachers, in fact, bring us to verse 17. They, that's these false teachers, they zealously affect you, but not well. And maybe this would be time to pause to reflect upon this interesting observation. There's not a one of us that would say that zeal and enthusiasm is not important. There isn't a one of us that would say that we should not be zealous, energetic, and on fire for the Lord. But therein lies the interest. 
zeal by itself is not proper. Zeal must be rightly directed, mustn't it? Enthusiasm must be properly constructed and rightly founded. You'll notice here were individuals greatly zealous, greatly enthusiastic. In fact, they appeared with all characteristic of viewing to be very pious and godly. But the problem was this. Their zeal was misdirected. It reminds us a bit of that text in Romans chapter 10, doesn't it? Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. There it is, isn't it? Those of whom Paul spoke in that passage, zealous, absolutely. Spirited, no doubt. Interested, absolutely. But their zeal was a zeal without knowledge. And because it was without knowledge, it was misinformed, misdirected, and thus misguided. Today, we still are in the midst of many who suffer from that spiritual nearsightedness. Their zeal is apparent, but it's without knowledge. It's without guidance. No wonder Hosea declared in Hosea 4, 6, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And so, here Paul urges them, the Galatians, Verse 17, Yea, they would exclude you that ye might affect them. But it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing. So Paul says zeal is not bad, but it's important to have zeal directed in a good thing. Oh, if only the human family and all the zeal that has so often been expressed in matters of religion could direct that zeal in a proper and appropriate fashion... Oh, what good could be brought about for the cause of our Master? Isn't it true beyond that that Paul again, after asserting these false teachers, had zeal without knowledge, zeal without proper direction? He then appreciates in us, for us, beginning in verse number 22, no doubt the most famous allegory in all the Bible. This allegory, in fact, begins like this. It is a masterpiece of Old Testament principle. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid and the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory, for these are two covenants, the one from the Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar, for this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which is in husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise." But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the flesh, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of, a fr of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. That's reading through the end of the chapter. And we see the comparison easily set forth. This gigantic consideration on the one hand was this covenant by virtue of the analogy to Hagar. On the other, this covenant that of course is the one attached to Jesus. And now might we ask, as we look at the features of the individuals, 
He specifically says in verses 23 and 24, to those Jews and to those false teachers that were so anxious to have attachment to the law of Moses and that made such great claims, we are Abraham's seed. Paul points out to them a valiant lesson. Have you forgotten Abraham had more than one son? He indeed had a son of promise. You and I recognize him as Isaac. But he also had a previously born son whose name was Ishmael. Recorded for us in Genesis chapters 15 and following. That son Ishmael was also a son of Abraham. Question, are you a son of Abraham through Ishmael or are you a son of Abraham through Isaac? Which is it? I wonder if those Jews had ever thought about that. My suspicion is that Paul's question caught them off guard. They weren't prepared for the thoroughness of Paul's answer. You'll notice he then builds an impregnable argument. Hagar, that bondwoman who was just a concubine of Abraham, she bore him Ishmael. That's true. But Ishmael, you remember, was born by the flesh. Hagar became pregnant in the natural way by way of Abraham and bore that son in the natural way. But compare that to Isaac. Remember, Sarah was well past childbearing years. It was God who by promise over 20 years earlier had said, Abraham, your seed, your and Sarah's, you will bring forth. And ultimately she did, just as God promised. So we notice Isaac was a son of promise. And so the question, are you and I attached to God through the free woman, namely Sarah, or through the bond woman, namely Hagar? That's not all. The covenants that came through them were just as significant. The covenant represented by Hagar was the law of Moses. Remember, it was gendered at Mount Sinai. What about the appreciation of the other covenant? It came from Jerusalem above, not on Jerusalem on the earth. And what a great difference that is. Having then come about from Jerusalem which is above, Paul then closed the chapter in verse 31 and said, Brethren... We are not children of the bondwoman. We are not attached to God through Ishmael. We should be attached through the faithfulness of the covenant. And Jesus the Christ is the one who now is the principal embodiment of that promise made to Abraham. In fact, isn't that the way chapter 3 ended? Chapter 3 verse 29. So then we are the seed of Abraham if we be Christ's. And so the question, are you Christ's? Am I Christ's? If so, we are the beneficiaries of that promise made to Abraham millennia ago. Isn't that rich? Isn't that enthralling? Isn't that profound? After making those observations and closing that which you and I recognize as chapter 4, chapter 5 opens in the following way. The language will not at all be surprising at this point. As we have made discussion so far about bondage on the one hand, attached to the law of Moses, freedom on the other hand, coming through Jesus. Look at how verse 1 reads of chapter 5. Stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again in the yoke of bondage. To the Galatian individuals, Paul said, The choice is yours. You can continue faithfully in Jesus and enjoy all the freedom and liberty that comes with that association to God by Him. On the other hand, if you revert to the law of Moses, 
you then will be returning to bondage just like the children of Israel did. You will then be suffering beneath the load of that bondage. You'll notice in the verses that follow, Paul then expressly lets us know which law he's talking about as if we didn't already. This same law that brings bondage is the one that required circumcision. Clearly he's talking about the law of Moses. This law, these false teachers were teaching to these Galatian people. That brings us to this observation in verse 4. Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law. Ye are fallen from grace. We noted this morning the central teaching of grace and how significant that is in the doctrine of some. You and I would not for a moment strive to lessen the power of God's grace. For we're told in Ephesians 2 verse 8, you're saved by grace through faith. It is only by God's gracious goodness expressed through the sacrifice of His Son and the gospel built upon Him that any of us can be saved. But notice Paul says, if you return to the law of Moses, though having been baptized into Christ, if you return to that law of Moses, seeking to be justified by it, appreciating in it the keeping of those laws, including circumcision, you have fallen from grace. Don't tell me then that it's impossible to fall from grace. The Galatians could, and if they could, anybody can. It is true, isn't it, that an individual, though once saved, can so live as to become lost, can so conduct himself as to forfeit the salvation he once had known. That is so often taught in the New Testament, it seems impossible for an interested and Bible-reading person to miss it. Didn't Paul say to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12 how important it is to be steadfast, how important it is to recognize that one can fall? What did Peter say to those in 2 Peter 2 verses 18 to 22? Here as Peter addressed individuals who had escaped the corruptions of this world, Paul's poetic way of describing their attachment to God through Christ and obedience to the gospel. They had escaped the corruptions of the world. Problem? They now had become again entangled therein and overcome. So these individuals who once were Christians forfeited all the majesty, privileges, and right and now had become again entangled in those things of the world. What was their fate? Peter said it like this, the latter end is worse than the, than the beginning. You are better off never having obeyed it than the situation you're in now. In fact, isn't it true those proverbs that Peter spoke, the sow that was washed returning to her wallowing in the mire, and that dog returning to its own vomit, 2 Peter 2.22? It is a very sad and despicable picture, but it's a real one, isn't it? Notice, Paul then encouraged these Galatians, don't give up Christ. Don't forfeit your attachment to the pure, unadulterated gospel. That brings us to verse number 6, which was the text that Joey read for us earlier. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision availeth anything but faith which worketh by love. Faith which worketh by love. We read in Hebrews 11 verse 6, But without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. The necessity of faith is unquestioned. 
But we notice that faith cannot be a dead one. It's faith that works. Those who, of course, do not understand the necessity of works with faith have a problem with a verse like this one. Faith which worketh by love. We read in James chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. To you and to myself, individuals who strive to be Christians, we understand our Christianity is manifested in those works, those activities, those things that you and I do day by day. Those works are so highly touted that we notice the motivating factor for them is love. We don't do them for our personal fame and our personal prestige and the name recognition that might come to us. We do them because we know that God is pleased by it and we look forward to serving Him in the acts of service that may well touch the lives of others. Isn't it true in 1 Corinthians 13 verses 1 to 3 that the highest motivation is in fact expressly said to be love. Paul on that occasion said, Even if I can speak in tongues, speak in all mysteries, understanding all knowledge, if love is not the motivation, it profits me nothing. He went on to say, Even if I should give my body to be burned, I am no better off if I'm not prompted by love. Isn't it amazing then to reconsider the pristine beauty of that subject of love? We do find it, of course, taught here in a verse like this one. But that love we quickly find manifested in some additional ways in this chapter. In verse number 9, though it's a short verse, how penetrating is the truth. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. This error that was being taught and encouraged by these false teachers, it doesn't take much for it to ultimately take hold and spread to places and engulf a whole family, a whole congregation. We even learned this morning in our lesson how that error can run rampant, can it? When given just a little space, a little leaven can leaven the whole lump. How careful we each must be to appreciate what error can bring about. Isn't it true then in verse number 15, Paul encouraged these Galatians, But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed lest ye be consumed one of another. You and I should appreciate that just as their case was, so it remains. You and I often recognize the greatest element in strength when we bond together and fight a common external enemy. That's when the church was her strongest in the first century, wasn't it? when the Roman authorities were trying to force them not to worship, not to meet, not to serve God, they nonetheless were powerfully attached to God. Acts 8 verse 4 says that they went everywhere preaching the Word. Today, the church is still strongest when that is its description. But notice it's its weakest when we fight one against another internally. That means we don't pay attention to the external foes. We don't pay attention to that which takes place outside. We're bickering and fighting and holding grudges one against another. And as such, we're weak. The devil has an easy time making his way into a church like that one. No wonder then in these verses that follow, Paul now brings to practical application these issues he previously had raised. So Paul, what does it mean then to stand fast in freedom? 
What does it mean then to hold fast to Jesus and to keep these false ideas at bay? Beginning in verse number 19, we have the following inspired list and we have been looking at it on Wednesday evenings for quite some time. Let's revisit it, at least read it quickly here and note again the placement of a set of ideas like this one. You'll notice in this list, the first part of it is called these works of the flesh. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Paul was quick to say all of these behaviors, gentlemen, people in Galatia, these behaviors will condemn your soul to hell. Just like I've told you before, I'm telling you again, these will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do we believe that? We'd better. Wouldn't it be a terrible fact to stand on the day of judgment with a sin of drunkenness on our record? the sin of heresies or variants or strife or these other things mentioned on our record. Do we honestly think we could claim, but God, I didn't know. God, I didn't think. I'm sure he might reply, yeah, you didn't think all right. It was in the sacred text all along, wasn't it? May we never try to justify, rationalize, make excuses. These things, the inspired writer said, will not enter heaven. We still live in a world that encourages many of these, don't we? The world makes light of them, makes fun of them, speaks of them as the pathway to frivolity, fun, and happiness, the pathway that leads to acceptance. Well, it may well do that, but it also leads to condemnation. Isn't it interesting that as Paul has listed these thoughts, he quickly turns the coin so, Paul, if I can't do these things, what may I do? What must I do? Verse number 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Perhaps, although that's a little before where we've gotten on Wednesday evenings, notice the last part, if you would, of verse 23. These things like meekness and gentleness and goodness and peace and joy and kindness. He says, against such there is no law. There isn't a human cord of any vestige that has made a law sufficient to warrant the dissolution of those things. But yet you and I know in Christ we have every one of them. He encourages them. He in fact invites us to understand that in life we can have all of that here and the greatness of the, all the realities of it beyond. The sweetness of these that we've just seen is the fruit of the Spirit. Isn't it interesting then that in verse number 18, we should be led of the Spirit? And so the question might become, are these nine elements expressed in your life and mine? Are you a person of joy and peace, long-suffering, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, temperance, self-control. Does that describe you and me? I fully expect that in the aspect of maturity, we will work through life on perfecting all of them. Are you working on perfecting them? Am I doing the same? Or do we simply not think about it? Do we make excuses for our failures in them? 
May we strive with heartiness, with eagerness, with great excitement to seek to be like Paul who recognized that he too did not want to be a castaway, but he always wanted to buffet his body and bring it into subjection. 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27. May you and I never forget that the inclusion of these things, the pursuit of them, should be a vital part of all of us in our Christian walk of life. As we come to the close of that slide, we come to the close of our lesson this evening. Chapter number 4 and chapter number 5. Perhaps in fairness, we can close with this statement that ends chapter number 5. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Galatians 5.25 and then verse 26. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. You'll notice Paul says rather than provoking each other in a bad way, rather than envying each other in this hurtful and damaging way, let us follow after the Spirit. Are you and I following after the Spirit? Are we using each day to the glory of God by utilizing the talents and abilities He has given us in a way that magnifies His cause, His Son, and His kingdom? I hope that we each are. I trust we're making efforts toward that end. But if tonight in the analysis of your life you find that these fruit, fruit of the Spirit that we see are not present in your heart, they're not present in your life, and you know that you'd like to work more diligently upon making it so, why not make things right tonight? If you're guilty of sins known publicly, things that others are aware in your life that are shortcomings, you can make that right tonight. Or maybe I should say, you through God can make that right. For Jesus has promised that if you'll come before Him acknowledging those things, confessing them and repenting of them, and upon your prayer with those of brethren, God will forgive you. It may be you've never become a Christian. You've never begun that walk with Jesus. At this point, you still are fully in the bondage of of the devil. Why not be made free tonight? Liberty is a foundational thought in our country. Don't you want to be made free from sin? Free from the shackles the devil has to this point had on you? We could, of course, assist you in making that a reality too. The plan of salvation demands that you believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess His name as the Master and be baptized. That act of baptism is such a moving moment. A time when you contact the blood of Jesus, for sins forgiven, you rise a new creature in Christ, all of that's washed away. You are literally a new person, spiritually and really. Tonight, if we could help one or more in this audience, we would love to do that. The God of heaven is begging you to come. Won't you do it while together we stand and while we sing?